This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. Hello and welcome to John Richardson and the Future Noughts Series 4. Series 4. Oh, back. Yeah, do you want like an echo on it? You could all... Series 4. Series 4. Oh, lovely. It is, of course, John Richardson, Ed Gillespie. Hello. And Mark Stevenson. Hello. Here with a brand new series. We've done some quite intense long listens on certain topics. We've riffed, we've researched our own topics. Series 4 is all about your questions. So get involved, find us on Twitter, social media. You can email us, send us your questions, and we will keep this show as up to the minute as we can by responding, I mean, to the second. How's about this then? Shall we start Series 4 to prove we're serious with a question that was sent to me six minutes ago on Twitter to show yeah. the listeners <laughs> how up-to-date we're going to be. Of course, they don't, they don't know when we're recording this, so you could have faked that. But would I lie? No. Would I do a podcast about saving the planet and lie on it? Well, of course I would, because I frequently <laughs> say it's good to be here. However, <laughs> the most recent question I had is when will Leeds United next win a trophy? I'm not going to put that to you because neither of you has the sufficient knowledge to give me a factual answer, which means you'll tease me and say something horrible about it being a long time. So Keith, six minutes ago on Twitter, said, do truth drugs really work? And could we make it compulsory for all politicians to take them 24-7? Oh, I don't know. I've, I've never taken one. <laughs> Ed, you've got far more experience with drugs than I have. <laughs> <laughs> uh, a truth drug. Um, oh, is this like sodium pentothal? You see, straight off, you know what you're talking about. Yeah, there, you go. there we go. I don't really know what I'm talking about, but if you're talking about sodium pentothal, <laughs> yes, it does work, and I've got some in my garage. Well, yeah, I mean, a lot of these things are about sort of dismantling your brain's overriding capacity, aren't they? Like, so. Well, the Conservative government have clearly taken a whole bunch of those. <laughs> well, yeah, exactly, exactly. Because there's a part of the brain called the default mode network, which usually is the sort of the conscious filtering element. And a lot of drugs that are taken are very good, particularly psychedelics, are very good at shutting that down. So, I mean, arguably, psychedelics would probably be more effective because then you see the full truth of the world. And then it's very well, hard to stand yeah. up and string eloquent sentences together because you're overwhelmed by the complex and galactic beauty of the universe. Sounds like a fun world to me. I mean, I, I generally, to new listeners joining us for Series 4, my role here is to be you, the listener. I'll ask the questions. Mark and Ed will answer because they have the knowledge. But, I mean, my answer to that one would be, I think we sort of know when politicians are lying anyway, don't we? The issue isn't knowing whether they're telling the truth or lying. The issue is trying to cajole them into doing something half decent how do you know when they're lying because they're opening their mouths oh their lips are moving yeah that's the old the old joke suck on that the system <laughs> um, so there you go that's the plan for series four we will uh, we'll chat we'll respond to your questions but of course it's been so long since we caught up let's find out what we've been up to and while we were discussing when to have this meeting I know, Mark, you were about to fly out to work on a translation of one of your plays. And Ed, you were about to meet with the WI. 
So how's that been for both of you? <laughs> hey, well, never underestimate the power of the WI. You know, the Women's Institute are genuinely a force to be reckoned with. Absolutely. No, it was, it was, a, it was a really interesting evening, actually. And we joked about it, didn't we? Because I think Mark was either going to do a translation of his play or was going to speak to like most of the energy brokers in the world gathered in Morocco. You were doing a sellout night of your tour, John. And mm-hmm. I was in the local church hall talking to the WI. So I think we're, we're working on system change at so many levels. Well, I mean, I've talked about levels. I think, you know, we've all found our level, haven't we, there? And I think that little story just sort of, you know, sums up where we, where we all operate. <laughs> I'll tell you what it tells me. It tells me that, I mean, of the three of us, we're all out there doing what we can. Two of us doing things that probably make us feel important. And one of us actually doing something that I can only speak for myself, I would have turned down and not done. So in terms of who cares the most and who's the most invested in getting out there and doing what they can, I would say you're actually in the lead there because I would have egged that meeting right off. Yeah, well, I mean, I actually got the privilege of seeing John in the flesh. It was the first time I've done that since 2019. <laughs> we didn't actually manage to get a beer together. No, I didn't see you. Because I, I, I ducked out of the Lodden WI meeting and I dashed straight into Norwich to catch the second half of John's show. And then there was a fire alarm and the whole theatre got evacuated. Yeah. And I said to John, I said, is this the first time? He was doing a routine about his bum at the time. <laughs> I don't want to, spoiler alert, people. If you're, it's actually about the environment. Yeah, it's actually about the environment. <laughs> Uh, but and I so I tweeted John immediately. I said, "Is that the first time your bum has cleared a theatre?" <laughs> <laughs> Suspicious. Now that we talk, actually, we've discussed your um, experience with drugs, and then you tell me that no sooner do you arrive in my venue than the smoke alarm goes off. <laughs> so, is there anything you want to tell me? Yeah. Well, there was that beautiful moment though, because across the front of the Theatre Royal in Norwich were these huge banners which said, "Sort of inspiring, passionate, enlightening, outstanding," which is obviously kind of general terms for the quality of the cultural experience of theatre but when myself and John's audience were all standing out in the cold waiting to be let back in there was this wonderful shot across everyone's heads with just outstanding in the background (laughs) so I took a photo of it and I sent it to John it's like that's the best review you're going to get mate yeah and they were outstanding so tell me about the WI because I'm genuinely interested they reached out to you did they to come and speak to them and what was the tone of that meeting well, it was actually a friend of mine, a granny from the school playground, Sally, who said, will you come and give a talk to the WI? And I said, what sort of talks do you have? And she said, oh, well, last month we had a talk uh, about someone giving their experiences to the vintage postcards of Chigwell in Essex. And I was like, <laughs> I was like what? So mine was entitled Everything You Wanted to Know About Climate Change But Were Afraid to Ask. And so, yeah, I took them on a bit of an adventure. I think there were some people obviously just come every week for the cake and (laughs) they were like, I didn't order this. Where's the vintage postcard guy when you need him? But um, it was a beautiful evening. There was a woman there as well who sort of came up to me. She goes, I just have to tell you, I bought one of your etchings 30 years ago. And it's like, what? And I, I, I did some etchings when I was at school and sold them to raise money for my year's voluntary teaching in Jamaica. Uh, and this woman had remembered. Wow. And, you know, I've still got one of your etchings on my wall three decades later. I reckon she's also got some pictures of you in a special shrine. 
But yeah, the WI, I mean, they are a cultural force to be reckoned with. I mean, I'm not joking about that. They are people who are still active, engaged, you know, in a sort of John Alexander citizenship type way. Mm-hmm. You know, they they want to do the right thing. Yes. And they want to try and do some, some good in the world. And so there were loads of things we talked about afterwards in the questions. There's always one old white dude, pretty much every event you go to, when you talk about climate change, who stands up and says, it's all about population. And Well, we'll come to that. Yeah, well, I know, I know. I <laughs> of questions about that. Yeah, so uh, there's always that question. And regardless of what you say, they keep repeating it. In the end, I had to ask him to politely step aside so we might actually give the floor to some other lines of questioning. But yeah, no, it seemed to land well. People were sort of agitated, but also inspired, which, hey, that's what we try and do. Mm, Well, I was in Marrakesh talking to 500 fossil fuel energy traders. (laughs) Where I'd lived in an hour long, you need to really wake up and help the energy transition speech. Yeah. How many old white guys did you have standing up saying it's not our fault, it's all about population? There were quite a lot of old white guys. There's quite a lot of young white guys, actually. Yeah. Anyway, one of the first question was from a young white guy. And his first question to me was, so what have you sacrificed to save the planet? And uh, <laughs> the second question was from an old white woman who said, uh, so why should we do anything when China and India aren't doing anything, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. So I demolished both those questions quite well, I thought. And then the guy who'd asked the first question came up to me afterwards and said, all right, I'm convinced. Shall I quit here and become an environmentalist? Wow. And he was serious. Yeah. And I said, no, you're going to stay here and become an environmentalist because as energy traders, you can help with the transition. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So I'm having a chat with him in a few weeks. Excellent. And a good point to direct those listeners who perhaps are new to uh, Series 4 to go back and listen to some of the first three series where those two questions are looked at in quite some detail so we'll get to your questions now there'll be a mixture of the serious and the less serious to keep the tone light let's start with luke from sheffield lives near the north pole <laughs> hello future notes i think i may be your northernmost listener i live in long in Svalbard, 78 degrees north. Svalbard's one of the fastest warming places on the planet, and a commonly quoted stat is that the average annual temperature is now four degrees warmer than in the 70s, including seven degrees in the winter. Residents who've lived here a while speak of witnessing dramatic change, including the receding of the glaciers, frequent warm periods in winter and summer, and increased precipitation. Yet we residents have a higher carbon footprint per person than perhaps anywhere on the planet, as all our fresh produce needs to be flown in by plane from Norway, and we are powered by a local coal mine so my question is should such remote outposts for humanity exist in our future world is there any justification and should people who can move away do so thank you for your work in putting these podcasts together cheers luke who wants that one (laughs) so there's two elements to luke's question one is like are these remote outposts going to be important in the future And if you've ever seen the kind of climate change classic film, The Age of Stupid, then you will know that Svalbard was quite essential as a kind of final refuge for the archivist who is at the centre of the story. So, yes, I think those places are going to become, ironically, more habitable, unfortunately, as the world warms. And the second thing is, is how people are likely to move, which is obviously connected to the first. I've just been reading Gaia Vince's new book, Nomad Century, where she talks about the fact that we're going to be confronted by the biggest 
organized, hopefully organized migration and shift in the whole of humanity's history, as we probably have to, in some way, relocate vast numbers of people from increasingly uninhabitable parts of the world to previously perhaps uninhabited. And, you know, that could be the most radical collaborative solution to climate change, but it's going to require an enormous transcendence of us and our attitudes in order to be able to facilitate that. So I think Svalbard may seem chronically unsustainable right now, Luke, but I think it'll be important both as a refuge as the world warms and actually will be reflecting a pattern of vast movements of people across the whole planet. And actually, there are quite a few remote places that have addresses by moving over to renewables and whatever. So places like Svalbard can in fact become a symbol of the transition because if you can get renewable energy and you can reduce the carbon footprint of a place like that, there's lessons learned there become very easily translatable to say uh, more urbanised places. So actually they can also be at the forefront of the transition. So it should become a transition town is what I'm thinking. (laughs) So to go back to your point then with the sort of people working in the fossil fuel industry, stay where you are. He says, I work as part of a large project that's investigating the role of climate change on the Northern Barrent Sea and use this position to justify living here. So what you're saying is that's okay, stay where you are, but be an advocate for change where you are. Yeah, I mean, unless you're working with an organisation that you know is never going to change, everything's a transition. So it's really interesting that actually the CEO of this this fossil fuel energy trader specifically asked for me to come and challenge all of them to think about the the energy transition because their position was, well, we just trade stuff. You know, we don't make the fossil fuels, but we do move it about. And actually, it doesn't be moving about. But, you know, but they are investing in the energy transition to a certain extent. But he wanted me to come and challenge them. And there was a moment where it looked like I wouldn't be able to get there just because I had another talk I was giving and the, the flights wouldn't work <laughs> and then they said well we'll send a jet if you like oh, <laughs> oh my god and I was like you do understand what you're asking me to go to yeah. <laughs> and yeah, you know, I didn't manage to get there. But yeah, and of course, I did remove all of the carbon from my flights. I've got a solution for you, Mark, because in a couple of weeks' time, I am going to become a hologram. I, I'm looking forward to that. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe I'll drink less when you come around. <laughs> but no, I'm going to go and do a, a test shoot for a new conference hologram technology, which means you can be live and present on the stage but obviously not actually having to physically be there. So Mm. there's a studio in London where we're going to go and shoot a little test film. So yes, I won't ever have to get on, well, I ever go on a bloody plane anyway, but it means I can actually do international gigs without actually having to leave the country. Mm. John, fancy being a hologram? Well, it has been tested comedically. I, I can't remember which comic it was in America who was able to perform at an awards evening and interact with the audience in real time and appear as a 3D hologram. Wow. And uh, speaking as a man who would rather be at home than on tour, I'm up for it. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. You could be beamed out from the dog and bastard to uh, anywhere on the planet, to Svalbard, in fact. Appearing live tonight in Svalbard as a hologram, John Richardson. Yeah. I'm mean, obviously comedically, there's an argument for sort of needing to be there and having the local humour. But I guess if it's, if it's a talk and an interaction, then you can, in theory, stay where you are and, and have the same effect. Mm. Well, apparently you get a screen of the audience as well. So, I mean, it's, yeah. I know it's obviously a degree of separation, but um, weirdly, apparently, the evidence shows that people listen better to a hologram whether that's just because of the novelty of it but you know you know when you start a conference talk and people are always dicking about with their phones Mm. um, and not really shuffling their papers not really paying attention no not when i'm talking no (laughs) 
Oh, okay. That's just me. Even the WI were drifting off, but that might have been for reasons of venerability. Um, but <laughs> yeah, exactly. People pay more attention and apparently listen more to what you're saying. Right. I'm fascinated that people listen more to a hologram. Well, I think it might just be the fact that it's new and different and people go, oh, yeah. it's, it's a hologram. So obviously it's got their 100% attention. I mean, maybe give it six to 12 months in our increasingly adult world and people are like, yeah, holograms, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, for me, I think... I definitely have to go to those places because, for instance, I know I was then invited to lunch to sit down with this billionaire and continue challenging him and his senior staff. And I was introduced to some of their people and there might be some follow up on that where they've got 500 million to spend on energy transition type things. That just wouldn't happen if you weren't there. But what I do do now is I now insist on my rider that if you fly me anywhere or get me anywhere, you have to pay for the carbon to be removed. Yes. So let's talk about that because obviously we're the start of a a series and what we get is a flurry of sort of similar questions and so many on flights. And Safi asks about, as you mentioned there, them offering to get you a private jet. Will we ever be able to stop the rich from using private jets and polluting more in a few trips than some people will in their lifetime? Of course, we've seen the news this summer about Lionel Messi's carbon footprint over three months flying his private jet something like 85 times in a in a couple of months so mark do you want to talk a little bit because genuinely this is the topic that is affecting my family the most so this summer we flew on a holiday last october i made a pledge that we would only fly once a year or i would because i sort of felt any more to be unreasonable so this summer we holidayed separately i took my daughter away on the eurostar and my wife who wanted to fly took her away somewhere else caused a big rift in the household we had some fairly meaty ding-dongs about it I've subsequently had to fly for work because I had some work that I couldn't get out of. I feel terrible about it. It's obviously being used against me that I'm willing to fly to the Isle of Man for work, but not to holiday with my family. Um, So talk a little bit about your new approach to flights and on what you think the sort of prevailing mood should be amongst those of us in the sort of more developed nations. Well, I mean, we talked about this before. Certainly when it comes to flying, which is 2% of global emissions, most of that actually is business travel. So it is not your family going on holiday once a year. And so what you... What about four times a year? Well, I mean, less is better for the planet. But what we don't want to do is demonising people who are going on a holiday when actually, as you say, it's people with their private jets and, mm-hmm. and it's business people. And, and people like me, in fact, you know, I fly an awful lot. I probably fly someone once every couple of weeks. So it's people like me that are the real problem. So what's been happening is that airlines have kind of been greenwashing themselves by saying, oh, you can offset that. And what people think they're buying, they think they're buying the removal of the carbon, they're not. What they're doing is buying an equivalent reduction of carbon being emitted in the future. So the carbon's still gone up and it hasn't been brought back down. What we need, all all the science tells us, is we need carbon removal. And unfortunately, that's expensive to do. And it's hard to do because not many people do it. I have to have express a vested interest here i mean i I think the other thing is here like there's the jump which is the kind of 59 percent of our carbon emissions that we have to cut in the next eight years come from some kind of social or behavioral change and the jump have calculated the six different behaviors you can alter which help to deliver 25 percent of that carbon cut and it's really impressive so they recommend one flight every three years but mark's right as well in saying that 75% of flights are taken by 15% of the population. Half the UK never gets on a plane and most people in the world will never go anywhere near an airport. So yes, it's only 2% of global carbon, but it's disproportionately shouldered by and driven by a very, very small amount of people on the planet. 
So it is it is tough. I'm kind of with him on the drawdown. I made a personal choice not to fly just because it makes me look like the sun shines out of my bum and, and polishes my own personal integrity. <laughs> yeah, and what's great about that is it means that often you don't turn up to places where we need you, and that's another bonus. Well... <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, also, and also, you know, there are ridiculous invites. You know, your fossil fuel brokers in Marrakesh is probably one of those really, really powerful and influential events. But sometimes, I mean, a few years ago, I got asked to speak at a sustainable travel event in Norway and they tried to fly me out. And I'm like going, I'm not flying out to speak for 20 minutes at a sustainable travel event. Yeah. So I made them a film instead. Indeed. Yeah. So to finish off the, what I was saying, it's expensive to do. I have to claim a vested interest and I've now set up a company with Gabriel Walker. We interviewed in, in, in the last series that actually does carbon removal properly. In a, in a... Oh, that's why you were so nice to her. <laughs> <laughs> so we actually do that now and, and we have a number of clients who are helping to do that. But, you know, there's absolutely no way we'll work with anybody that isn't on an aggressive curbing of their emissions because the science says that even if we curb them as much as we have to, we still have to pull out a whole bunch of carbon that's already up there, which means we need to grow a massive carbon removals industry. And that's going to be a tough job, but we're, we're having a go. As a layman then, in terms of emissions from flying, is it as simple as saying if we actively remove the carbon or is flying itself, A, systemically something that we need to look at changing and B, are there other emissions from burning jet fuel other than carbon that we should be equally as worried about? Well, there's all sorts of emissions. I mean, I don't want to get into the massive science of it, but there's something called radiative forcing, which basically is, you know, how bad are the emissions depending on where they're released. And actually, if you release emissions higher in the atmosphere, then they have a bigger effect than if you release them lower in the atmosphere. Also, there are, depending on the, how clean the fuel is, you get particulate matter that comes out into the atmosphere. Now, some of that actually might be quite good because some of it might actually reflect sunlight back, but some of it might be quite bad in that it helps absorb heat as well. So there's uh, quite a lot of science still being done on that. But really, what we need to do is do less flying. But what we don't want to do is say we can't fly at all. Mm. I mean, we should be thinking about sustainable aviation and how to do that. I mean, you know, for instance, let's say my friends at Medicines on Frontier, you know, are responding to, say, an Ebola crisis. Um, do we say to them, you can't get on a plane and go out there? Of course you mm -hmm. don't. So what we need to do is, is shift aviation to a much more sustainable footing. There's lots of people looking at hydrogen aircraft. We're a long way off doing that. And what you don't want to do is have all that amazing research that is going on into more sustainable ways of flying, give people a sense of security that says, oh, well, I don't have to change my behavior. We absolutely need both. We need people to fly less and we need all that innovation to, to carry on. And we need to remove the carbon when we do fly. You know, having said that, though, the company that I've set up, you know, we're working with a number of corporations and, and they are actually, they're saying, like, you're not flying anywhere anymore. You have to really justify now if you want to get on the flight to go anywhere. So there is some movement there. It's not as quick as we would like, but it's definitely going in the right direction. Lovely. That was sort of fairly positive. The other question, apart from flights and truth drugs <laughs> that we've had loads of, is abroad. So I said, if you could ask any question about the future to Mark and Ed, I reckon I've had about 100. Is there going to be a future? Is it going to be all right? What's the point of all of it? And I know we tackle this literally in the first episode, I think, of every series. Series one, two, and three starts with a broad question about whether you put it under the banner of maintaining mental health, whether you put it under the banner of does individual action matter? I think an actual, an interesting wording came in from Dan, who said, in some ways, actually, have we never had it so good? Mm. So I thought it might be interesting to put to both of you some positivity, because I know we've talked about this in the past. And one of the sort of main takeaways I've had from our work together so far is if we who are invested in and passionate about changing the future for the better 
don't make it look fun and enjoyable and don't talk about the positives of our lives and how good the future is going to be, then you will lose that battle because you have a massive percentage of people who are demotivated and and Mm. depressed about the way we talk about climate. So whether you want to talk about things that are happening that are good or how you feel about your own sort of interactions at the moment, then um, take it away. Well, yeah, no, I mean, I think Mark and I, when years ago, when we were first starting to do the Future Nords live shows, I think we opened a Christmas show with the lines from Dickens, uh, Tale of Two Cities, where it's like, it was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epoch of belief. It was the epoch of incredulity. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. We had everything before us. Does this go on for a while? Yeah, we had everything before us. We had nothing before us. We were all going direct to heaven. We were all going direct the other way. And I think the reason we chose that at the time was because it always feels like the futures out there is just not evenly distributed, as is the collapse. And I think we touched on that before. And I was chairing our good friend Kathy Runciman's Fixing the Future event in Barcelona last month. And I actually sort of challenged that notion of fixing when we did the opening keynote, because we can get very bogged down in all the kind of solutionizing and focusing dramatically on solutions and often come up with the wrong ones if we're not careful. And so I tried to sort of re-emphasize the, the meaning of fixing. So it's not just about repair, but it's actually the other meaning of fixing, which is like holding our gaze steadily and unwaveringly on all the possible futures that are in front of us, and then being able to actively select and choose the right ones. So again, we come back to this balancing act. I find some of the projected hope, you know, what they now call climate bright siding, where it still feels very techno utopian. Uh, and don't worry, guys and gals, you know, there's no bumps along this road and, and everything's going to be sorted uh, through these specific technological innovations. And at the same time, you know, the other projection is the negative stuff, is the, the projected fatalism and, and defeatism. And both of those are projections and neither are very helpful. And I think where we always try and sit is like in that middle with humour, you know, humility and hyper self-reflectivity to keep on asking the right questions. And, you know, most of what Mark and I do is trying to ask the right questions, because if you, if you get asked the wrong ones, then you, you get the wrong answers. And how are you both doing in terms of your ability to stay positive at the moment? Because I find when we work together, I feel sort of broadly better about it. And then when we have a gap between series, I tend towards the negative again. And I, you know, I was thinking recently about, what I perceive as the change for the worse in the six years my daughter's been alive in terms of how systems seem to be run, even how we speak to and interact with each other, whether we have any hope of uniting collectively as a as a species and the climate stuff and the change for the positive that I think I've seen in the 40 years I've been alive. Mm. And there does seem to be an imbalance. And I sometimes it does feel very dark, but... I speak as someone who isn't engaged day to day as you are. So, Mark, how are you coping mentally at the moment? That's a really great question. I think I'm the same. You know, I have different views on different days, particularly when you're sat, set, for instance, with 500 fossil fuel energy traders and you'll get questions. You know, I was told before I went, oh, these guys are all really smart. And you get asked really, really stupid questions that clearly don't understand the context of the industry in which they're working. Mm. So, you know, that kind of it does depress you. And you look at, you know, the energy mix is hardly shifting. We've got loads, loads, loads more renewables, but actually we've got loads, loads, loads more fossil fuels. So it does become incredibly depressing because the speed of change is not fast enough. And that is a risk. However, there is change happening and it's happening faster and faster. 
and what you what I hope for is you might get start to get tipping points um, in a positive direction. And actually, you are seeing that now in terms of the way that certain finance is being deployed. We have a, a legally binding net zero target for the UK. And actually, Client Earth, who I am an ambassador for, we just recently took the government to court between last year and this one to say your net zero plan doesn't add up to your legally binding obligation for the country. And now the government's been forced to go back and write a decent net zero plan. So you're seeing increasing sort of legal action coming along. So I think the point is, it is a tough old journey and it is depressing and it is hard, but you've just got to keep going. And it's the keeping going and trying to do something positive where you find your own agency, I think. And when you feel you've got a bit of agency, even if it's a small thing, then that itself is really good for your mental health. You've done something. Like the company I've set up, you know, we are literally being asked by you know, some very prestigious clients to remove carbon from the atmosphere. And we're growing that industry and, and giving that money to scientists and researchers and organizations that can genuinely take carbon out of the atmosphere. Now it's tiny at the moment, but that's a step in the right direction. So I think it's always about just being active. And then I think when I'm very bad at this is when you get home at night, maybe just saying, you know, what, I'm not going to think about this for a while. I'm going to shut off and engage more fully with what's in front of me. And then that's the problem. That's where I suffer because, you know, quite often in the back of my mind, I'm still thinking about climate change as looking at my children. And sometimes I think I need to just, you know, play with the Lego. That's a really important point. I think it's those little tender acts of attention and love, whether it is actively trying to spend time with the beautiful young lives you're nurturing in the form of your children, you know, whether it's getting your hands dirty in the garden. I've been making jam. It's like a scene of domesticity here. But I think it's those those little things that make the world a more beautiful place, even in the teeth and the face of some of the horrors that actually really help you, you stay up more upbeat. And I think the thing that drives me mad is just when we get this sort of regurgitation of chronically discredited ideologies and narratives, which we seem to be getting resurgent at the moment in the UK, you know, things like I mean, trickle-down economics. <laughs> it's like if there hadn't been a more discredited ideology over the last 30 or 40 years, I don't know which one it is. And yet, you know, it's back and you can hear it entering into those macro narratives. And that kind of stuff does make me teeth-grindingly furious because, you know, it's nonsense. Yeah, I mean, one thing I would say is I keep seeing increasing support for things moving in the right direction. The fact that this podcast is on its full series, yeah. for instance, you know, heading to one and a half million downloads and you know you do see stuff going in the right direction and the thing is i think it was jesse owens the the sprinter one of my favorite sports men from history uh, mostly i think because he really pissed off adolf hitler by <laughs> winning the 100 meters at the berlin olympics and therefore as a as a black man totally in public uh, at a prestigious event in germany totally uh, undermining the ridiculous uh, racist position of of nazi germany you know it's like stick that up yeah croc Arians. Um, but Jesse Owens said, look, there's good in the world, find it, amplify it. And I think that's the best you can do. Because the more we believe in the future, and the more we believe it can be better, the more it will be. You've got to fall in love with the future. And yes, you've got to be really, really cognizant of all the bad stuff. As Edward Abbey said, better cruel truth and a comfortable delusion. Mm. But you also have to believe in the good and put yourself into it. And when you do do that, you find yourself happier and more engaged. But it, it doesn't mean that you don't have very dark moments mm. and i've certainly struggled with that but at the end of the day i've got something to do as we all do yeah well let's face it you know if, if you live 80 years as oliver berkman pointed out that's four thousand weeks so having just turned 50 i'm two and a half thousand weeks in so only 1500 weeks to go <laughs> <laughs> is that all we have to put up with you for yeah <laughs> that's cheered me up already <laughs>
Dead for tax reasons says, will I go completely bald or is my current small bald patch as far as it'll go? <laughs> That's a genetic question, surely. Having been like half bald for half my life. Yeah, I've, I mean, I've still got hairs up there. They're just, they've been very well distributed. And they're fewer in number. Mm. What I will comment on is I believe that whoever sent that is a Douglas Adams fan because Death for Tax Reasons is a is a reference to Hot Black Desiato, the intergalactic pop star who did indeed spend a year dead for tax reasons in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. So that person uh, has my admiration. And therefore, if they've got that kind of taste, I don't think it matters whether they're bald or not, they're going to go to go down well in the world. Lovely. Bjorn says, I want to know about musical trends, real ones and not the TikTok Instagram stuff that lasts for two weeks. What will we be listening to in the next five or ten years? Prog rock. Prog rock. <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. That's a quick one. We're going on tour. We're in tour rehearsals. We're going on tour in November. Quantum Pig hitting the road. Yep. So which night are we having a Future Noughts evening in the audience? Yeah, let's do that. My tour takes a break over November and December so that we can all enjoy the Blood World Cup. So where will you be in that time? We'll be supporting Frost on their UK tour. In the UK, we're doing Bath and Sheffield, I think, and Leeds and Edinburgh, ending up in... uh... In London, Islington Town Hall. I can't actually remember the dates, which is quite embarrassing. Um, I will look them up. Get your PA to share them on the Twitter. Yeah, indeed. Do. Let's stick them out on the podcast and we can have a sort of a future notes get together at one of your gigs. Yeah. And while we're on the sort of the positivity, thank you to emails from Johnny, who said, I wanted to thank you for the podcast. I owe you a special debt of gratitude for helping me secure my current job. Binging the first series encouraged me to seek a job that would change the world for the better, but the Client Earth episode helped me appear especially knowledgeable about the work of my new bosses by accident. The Global Returns Project is partnered with Client Earth and five other climate-focused not-for-profits and work to persuade investors and wealth managers to fund non-market solutions to regenerate and restore the biosphere. So that's a positive effect that we've had. Bjorn from Sweden also says, the podcast helped me decide to switch jobs. I used to work at the Norwegian equivalent of Network Rail with wonderful colleagues and our lovely managers, but the increasingly toxic work environment when I was offered a position at a carbon capture company, the episode on the future of work and Mark and Ed's general positivity on carbon capture encouraged me to take the leap. So that's beyond. So well done to the two of you for that. Thank you. Oh, yeah. Whatever. <laughs> um, he also says his question, Bjorn, is what do you think of the current trend for infusing just about everything with licorice? My opinion is they can shove it up their arse. I like licorice, but keep it out of chocolate ice cream and pizza. <laughs> Licorice pizza? That's a movie, isn't it? Sounds like another pop star from Douglas Adams. I don't think that's actually a thing, is it? Well, I'm, I think I agree with him. I'm a huge fan of licorice and aniseed flavours. Mm-hmm. In fact, my favourite cocktail is a Sambuca 75, which if you haven't had one, listener, you must immediately. But you don't want it everywhere. It's a very singular taste. I particularly love the very salty licorice you get from the Nordic countries, which is yes. very, very delicious. But uh, yeah, I don't, want it, I don't want it infusing too many other things. Although... You know, I know licorice ice cream sounds quite nice now. <laughs> yeah, licorice ice cream's lovely. And someone was telling me about licorice coffee the other week, which I really want to try. That mm. sounds really nice. I'm not. I'm not convinced. It's the colour for me. It's like eating black things. You know, it's like mm. usually that signifies that it's burnt or really, really dead. What else do you mm. eat that's like proper black? Oh, maybe coffee, actually. <laughs> Wild rice. Wild rice. All right, okay. Yeah. yeah. I stand corrected. Um, yeah, that's the only thing. I don't have many black foods. 
squid ink pasta. Good, well, that's true. That's true. Um, a really good dal, black lentils. That's yeah. All right. Okay. Okay. I was going to yeah. row back on that. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that's a categorical destruction of your argument there, Wallet. Yeah. <laughs> it's very rare you get to win an argument by just saying squid ink pasta. <laughs> <laughs> That might be the first time that's ever happened. <laughs> it's, it's very common in marine biology circles. I'm going to tell you about some, some cephalopod emissions. So broadly, since the last series we did, I mean, it hasn't been great, has it? <laughs> it's only been 120 days. You know, you know, you disappear for like three or four months and it fills up the whole world unravels. Well, that's what happens when we stop broadcasting. Uh, no, exactly. We're holding it together. There's some kind of fibre in the universe that when we stop recording, it just goes... <laughs> Excellent sound effect, Ed. I've got to say that was really brilliant. I uh, know. I used to dub Hanna-Barbera cartoons in the 70s. <laughs> <laughs> Richard says, and this relates broadly, I guess, to energy and uh, one of the current issues we're facing, what's the point of a all moving to electric vehicles if there isn't enough power to power even homes amidst warning of blackouts. Mm. This is an energy demand question, but it's also it's more complicated and nuanced than that as well. Essentially, we're as Mark said, you know, we're growing renewable energy really dramatically, but we're also still burning more fossil fuels than ever before. And so there's a question of additionality, that the renewables are not displacing the fossil fuels. And it comes back to what we're saying about aviation. There has to be a degree of energy demand management and not just meeting this ever burgeoning appetite for energy because there are implications and impacts from pursuing a 100% solar wind and battery powered grid as well. So yes, we probably have to bring down the demand because every industry is currently competing for a growing but still limited supply of renewables. And so like we've talked about in terms of um, Insulate Britain's campaign, which frankly, in hindsight, look quite prescient, foretelling the kind of dilemmas we're in at the moment. And the fact that, you know, we waste about a third of our energy in the UK through our leaky housing stock. And what people need is cosy homes. So, you know, we really need to be dramatically bringing that down. But the other thing that is often missed in the context of electric vehicles is that they're kind of like the 21st century coal truck, i.e. they could be the way that you can store and move energy around. So when Mm. you've got a very high powered renewable energy grid and a million electric vehicles on the road, you can incentivize people to plug them in and charge them when the sun's shining and the wind is blowing. And then your electric vehicle may well be running your home for up to three to five days. So they provide a really crucial component in the balancing mix of a solar wind Mm. and battery powered grid. So you might well be charging your home off your car, not your car off your home. I think that's really fascinating when you start to get into to that because that's rethinking the system, you know, as Mark and I bang on about all the time. So if you're asking the question, it's like, well, are electric vehicles a solution to mobility? Well, no, because the car is only useful and functional in limited applications and particularly not in inner city areas. But it could well have a more integrated role as partial mobility, particularly through shared car clubs and and shifting car ownership, providing people access to mobility, but also as a balancing force in a renewable energy powered grid. Mm. I mean, the thing to say about electric cars, they are not the solution, but because they have far fewer moving parts, 
they actually last a lot longer. So in terms of cost of ownership per mile average lifetime, they're a lot, lot cheaper and they get replaced less often as well. So that's good. Rather than, you know, your fossil fuel power car is replaced at a much higher rate of replacement than an electric car. So that's good as well. You've still got to use them more wisely. I think that's the other thing. It's like 90% of cars spend about 90% of their time doing nothing. Yeah. So, you know, in terms of idling assets... They are not very effective. Yeah, I mean, I think when with the driverless technology, it's going to be very unlikely that, for instance, my two boys who are six and three will ever learn to drive because it's, it'd be pointless for them to do so. A driverless car will turn up and take them where they need to go, and they'll, you know, and that will massively increase the capacity of the roads whilst reducing car ownership, which is quite a good thing. Amen to that. Chris says, "What will our country be when we get rid of the royal family? Is there a different option other than?" republicanism and this is something i've heard a lot i've heard a lot since we stopped recording i'm not a royalist but uh, and a lot of conversations about would you prefer a president are there other options so this is fascinating right <laughs> first of all i love the way he says when we get rid of the royal family i wonder what yeah. you're planning <laughs> like you definitely think that is gonna happen he's very certain isn't he there's something very strange about this, and I've been reflecting on this since uh, the death of the Queen, is that the monarchy is a wholly undemocratic institution. By definition, it's, you know, it's hereditary a succession. And yet, the opinion polls say that if you asked people to vote whether to keep it or remove it, then something like the vast majority, like something like 70% plus of people would vote to keep it, which is really weird. So you've got an undemocratic institution that if people were given a democratic vote on it, would ask to keep. And it's something very strange about the British national psyche that that is expressed in that. I mean, I think there was something, you know, I saw this great tweet, which was, uh, I've never been much of a royalist, but dying the day after meeting Liz Truss is a move I can respect. (laughs) (laughs) You know, there was that kind of, as this parade of politicians go, you know, through, sort of the Queen sort of looking more statesmanlike than pretty much any of them. Certainly, I think changed some of our perception about her. And I think the problem is we individual royals have been born into that situation, which is privileged, but also, you know, I'm sure Harry and Meghan would say actually not very nice. And so you have this sort of split in your head between the institution and what it represents, particularly when it comes to colonialism, and then the individuals who you might have mm-hmm. some individual sympathy for. And I think that's where we all sit. It's a, a weird anachronism that actually does have some incredible power. I mean, you know, I've often had to work with. Uh, things associated with the royals and the convening power. For instance, if you know, if Prince Charles says, can I get five people in the room, those five people turn up, and that does have an enormous power. But at the same time, there's the whole colonialism thing, which turns out you don't mention over coffee, except I do. I remember I was asked to do an event for the Commonwealth at which uh, Harry and Meghan turned up, and I was asked a question about uh, the past. And I said, well, the thing with the Commonwealth is the wealth isn't particularly common, is it? Uh, amongst it and uh, that's probably a problem and uh, all the people <laughs> cheered uh, and all the organizers uh, tried to remove me that's often a pattern at our events yeah. isn't it well, I get, I get tried to yes, remove. I get, uh, <laughs> you know, we find that when mark and i did a couple of gigs together this summer you know for the british council of offices and then for a large supermarkets digital team and we found that the people on the floor loved what we said and the organizers or the directors of the businesses were like don't ever invite those two on stage again. <laughs> Maybe that's why the three of us get on, because I find in my tour there's sort of a unifying message to what I'm saying, but it's broadly about having me removed. <laughs> How is the tour going, John? It's all right. Yeah, we're 10 or 15 dates into about 
80 or 85. So let's be honest, if I can't be positive about it now, then we're in real trouble. (laughs) (laughs) It's great to get out there and see people. I thoroughly enjoyed the second half. Thank you. Thank you. Let's make it clear that you didn't make the first half rather than that the first half shit. (laughs) 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 I enjoyed when it ended. (laughs) I think uh, it was the smoke alarm that was the best bit, wasn't it? It was, yeah. That was a highlight. I was worried people wouldn't come back. But if you want a review of my tour that I think is good, there was only about five minutes left of the show and everybody came back in for it. And I don't think they would have if it had been dog shit. No. So Mm. that's about as positive about my own work as I can be. Excellent. (laughs) Or maybe people want their full money's worth. Worth pointing out as well that Chris, who asked the question about uh, the Republic, his Twitter bio says... We all know much less than we think. We should be asking questions instead of giving opinions. Yes. So it's a nice question, but also potentially a death knell for this podcast. Mm. But we are asking questions, right? Yes. I think that's the. I think that comes back to the point I was trying to make about solutionising. You know, is like uh, Mark will probably correct me on this, as he always does when I misquote someone. But I mean, allegedly. Einstein famously said, when given an hour to solve a problem, I'll spend 55 minutes interrogating the question before I try and get into having an answer. And I do worry that we don't spend enough time understanding the systemic nature of the question uh, or getting a question which cuts to the heart of the problems in the system. And therefore, you you leap to the, the wrong answer. Yeah, I mean, I say this all the time. You get you know people leaping to use technology where they don't need to. So you get artificial stupidity rather than artificial intelligence because yeah. they've asked themselves the wrong question. But um, actually, that quote as well, I do have to correct. Yeah, <laughs> I, knew, I knew you would. I knew you would. I mean, I don't know. If you've got some kind of like quote section in your brain, which is like has been deliberately archived back to the absolute truth, because I'm obviously lazily rely on Google and it's clearly failing me. Yeah, the thing is that quote has been various attributed to various different people and actually Einstein did say something like it and I think so did George Washington and a few other people. It's like one of those generic pieces of wisdom that's variously attributed to to all sorts of people. Well, I'm going to claim it then. I'm going to claim it as mine. You have said it. So, you know, <laughs> yeah, to be or not to be, that is the question. Mark Stevenson, 2022. <laughs> I'm going to attribute it to Gary McAllister just because he's a nice guy. <laughs> So an interesting point there, that one of the things that certainly the three of us discuss a lot in the planning analysis part of this podcast is that because... Well, which part of the planning and analysis part of this podcast is that? We had that Zoom a few weeks ago, didn't we? <laughs> that half an hour Zoom we had. And, and we all think in the shower. Yeah, most people do, actually. Yeah. This is one of the arguments about working from home. It's like Mark said it on stage. It's like, where do people have their best ideas? No one ever says the office. Yeah. Literally, no one ever goes, yeah, I had my best idea ever at work the other day. Yeah. It's like- and in fact, when we did that gig over the summer for the British Council of Offices, where we were very rude to them and uh, said that, you know, that being asked to work in a modern office is like being asked to sit under the devil's foreskin and be thankful for the privilege. <laughs> <laughs> I think you said it's like working in a weapon that's pointed at everything you love. <laughs> yes, indeed. But, um, you know, I asked the audience of people who develop and devise offices, where do you all have your best ideas? And people were going like, oh, in the shower, when I ran, when I walked the door, I said, literally none of you said the office. What no. the fuck are you building? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you see why we're popular. <laughs> yeah, this is a good point to uh, interject that if uh, if you do run a business and you'd like Mark and Ed to come in, lag you and your ideas off, <laughs> you can reach them both on the internet. 
Well, no, but, but it's the unspoken truth. I mean, like, invariably at these events, people come up to you afterwards and just go, I'm really glad you said that because no one's saying it. And it's the thing that we all know that we can never articulate. Well, we've, we've, we've had two bookings off the back of that office gig already. So. Yeah, that's true. That's true. What we don't discuss as much as we should is that this podcast itself is fun to do and our audience is a sort of a united group of like-minded people who are all interested in making the future better. So All over the world. All over the world, indeed. And that brings us to a final email that we've had from uh, Marissa in Minnesota, who says, I've just finished your episode on population when you all noted you didn't receive a lot of emails about your future of shit episode. That's a great episode. It was a good episode, wasn't it? And again, not a lot of people talking about it. I thought I would email to let you know how much I appreciated that episode, especially when you talked about how an increase in the number of toilets doesn't necessarily correlate with the number of toilet users. We like to think there's a toilet that will help, but the Floyd is thinking, of course, that people will adopt something foreign and uncomfortably different from what they're used to. Um, It's how much uncomfortable I feel thinking about shitting into a bag that then gets set outside by a tree. (laughs) I found the information about the flaws of water-based sewage systems, particularly in Lightning. I've always viewed flush toilets as the gold standard for poop disposal and was quite confused when the school I was working at in Namibia made the decision to build several new pit latrines despite already having flush toilets. Hearing about the sheer volume of water waste produced by and the flaws of water-based sewage systems helped put this decision into perspective. Desert climate coupled with frequent water outages and 900 plus students living on site made pit latrines clearly the right decision plus a palm tree, the desert equivalent of the banana tree, can be planted over any decommissioned latrines. Thank you for your perspective on shit. I very much enjoyed the podcast and look forward to catching up to the more recent ones. Thanks, Marissa. So someone enjoyed our shit work. That's beautiful. Again, it's the question piece, isn't it? It's like going, if your question is about, you know, the efficacy of modern toilets and latrines and you leap to the fact that everyone's dying for a flush toilet you may well go down completely the wrong pit latrine uh, <laughs> and end up with the right choice which is a pit latrine rather than mixing it all together as we talked about in that previous episode so yeah separate your poo people <laughs> i spent last night reading who's poo to my daughter as her bedtime story which is great in case everyone hasn't read it he's that bear isn't he from the hundred acre wood poo bedtime stories are great aren't they who's poo <laughs> Is it a similar vibe to the little mole knew it was none of his business? They're sort of trying to piece together where a piece of shit came from. Uh, yeah, yeah. And there's another one about a shrew as well, which is about scary poo, about a shrew having to identify panther poo right. for fear of being eaten. Oh. There's a lot of coprophiliac type of joy in children's stories. Yeah, I'm glad we got to this point on the first episode. This is really great. What, coprophilia? Absolutely. It's the time that very few podcasts discuss squid ink, pasta and electric cars. So if nothing else, I hope this first episode has pointed out that whatever you ask, we will discuss. So keep your questions for Series 4 coming in. On Twitter, we are at J and the F. Or if you want to send in an email, it's hello at johnandthefuturenauts.com. Keep your questions and comments coming in. Mark and Ed, what does the uh, coming week hold for you? Anything exciting? Oh, I am giving three talks this week. I'm doing one at the top of the Gherkin, which should be interesting. I've never been up there before. That's on Future Digital. I'm doing one on Law uh, on Tuesday. And then I've got my... I'm back at Sandhurst, the uh, UK Army's Officer Training Academy, with all my Forward Institute fellows giving them a a climate change provocation. So, yeah, 
It's a quiet week. <laughs> uh, what I'm doing at the moment is I'm reorganising my studio because I'm about to have a grand piano put into it, Ooh. and that's quite Ooh. exciting for me. Excellent. So there'll be a lot of album, a lot of album three. There'll be quite a lot of piano on that. Oh, that's good. I like the piano. Yeah. I might listen to it now. Yeah. And then, uh, yeah, but I'm off, off to Scotland to a company I'm working up with there, helping them become the world's first regenerative manufacturer. So I'm going to be sitting with them for a day. Oh, a friend of mine's just applied for that job that you, oh, wrote, excellent. you wrote the job description for. Yeah, yeah. Excellent. Excellent. Good. Excellent if they get it. And then I'm off to talk to Coca-Cola. Awkward if not. Oh, In... God. Coca-Cola. What do you say to them? Yeah. They seem completely resistant to change. Yeah. We've been arguing with Coca-Cola for decades now, haven't we? Mm. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm going to do what I normally do and get hounded out the door. <laughs> Tell us all about it next time. We'll be back as soon as we can. Thank you for listening. What are you doing, Johnny? Just sort of on the treadmill? Oh, just whining about shit, putting a cardigan on, talking about hemorrhoids and... Uh... <laughs> Nottingham and Cambridge. So when you say you're talking about hemorrhoids in Nottingham and Cambridge, are you talking about hemorrhoids that are specific to those local areas or are you taking your talk about hemorrhoids to those areas? No, I've written a specific show for that. The actual the tour show is all about, you know, futures and climate, but just for Nottingham and Cambridge, I've written a two-hour discussion on hemorrhoids. So... Um, <laughs> Come and see me on tour. Probably not if you live in those areas. I'm supposed to say come and see me if you live in the Nottingham area at the end of the month because that one hasn't sold as well. But I think I've sold as many tickets in Nottingham as I'm going to and sometimes it's important to accept our limitations. Thank you to the Twitter user who, when I asked her questions about the future, said, will comedians continue to make shitty programmes with their parents? Well, I can't speak for that, but I can say that my mother-in-law documentary that I made is uh, on all four at the moment. And that's a bit of fun and it's just a bit of a laugh in an effed up world so um, you can enjoy that if you want or you can not enjoy anything ever again but you're still gonna die <laughs> thanks for joining us we'll see you next time bye, bye. <laughs>